what is a church supposed to do? Well, this, this Sunday we'll begin a, a, a mini-series, a three-part sermon series on the vision statement of Christ's Covenant Church, the statement you see there in the bottom left-hand side of your bulletin. It says, Christ's Covenant Church exists to love God's glory so that we can love God's people and go out and love to God's world. These three directions capture all that God wants his people to be and to do. So Jesus says that the summary of all God's commands is this, to love God wholeheartedly and to love your neighbor as yourself. And loving your neighbor, you know, there will be a lot of overlap, but some distinction depending on whether that neighbor is a non-Christian or a Christian. So we have loving God, then loving your neighbor who is a brother or sister in Christ, and then loving your neighbor who is not a Christian. So the church as a whole and every person in the church has to be oriented in all three of these directions uh, with a kind of seamless integration, you know, loving God, loving each other, and loving outsiders. Now, often the case is that these three are far from integrated, but rather they seem to be at odds with one another. Someone in the church may think that it's strange how much the church uh, gives attention to care groups when clearly, they think, the more pressing need is missions and evangelism. Or another person might think, It's strange how much public attention is given to missionaries when there are so many marriages in the church that are struggling, and clearly so many people in the church need to know the Bible better. Shouldn't we be giving more attention to talking about marriages and Bible study? So we we hear with different ears the emphases of the church because we see with different eyes. We perceive the needs differently. But our goal as a church is really to exist and operate in all three of these directions at the same time. These three operational directions for the church are really one calling, expressed in three different ways. We see this uh, stated clearly in 1 Peter chapter 2. This won't be our text for this morning, but 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And there is the single coherent point of these three directions. You were chosen by God, you are a people for his own possession, so that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's the integrating feature of these these three ministry fronts. When we proclaim the excellencies of God in the gospel back to God directly, that is Christian worship. When we proclaim the excellencies of God in the gospel to one another, that's Christian fellowship and nurture. And when we proclaim the excellencies of God in the gospel to non-Christians, that is Christian missions. And it's missions that we're going to talk about this morning. So we'll start with the third piece of our mission statement, uh, loving God's world. Now, if you know the Bible pretty well, let me ask you a question. How many passages are there in the Bible that talk about missions? You know, which passages can you think of? Maybe Matthew 28 comes to mind, the famous Great Commission. Maybe Revelation 5 or 7, you know, John's vision of people from every tribe and tongue worshiping in heaven. Maybe Isaiah 42 or Psalm 67 or the story of Jonah taking the, the message of God's forgiveness to the people of Nineveh. Maybe Acts 1 and 2 and the expansion of the church. Now, how many passages are there in the Bible that talk about missions? 
which you might have already realized this is kind of a trick question because really the whole Bible is about missions. You know, if we were able to take like a super magnet and run it over the Bible and pick up every scrap of metal in the Bible bearing at least a trace of missions, what would be left down beneath? Nothing. The answer is nothing. The whole Bible is about missions in some sense. Mission means purpose. And acting or going or being sent, commissioned with purpose. And God's purpose is the theme of the Bible. His mission is what the whole story is about. And then the mission of God defines the mission of his people, the mission of the church. So the church's mission or purpose is derived from God's mission or purpose. And what is that mission? Well, the goal of all God's activity is this, to establish his cosmic reign in Christ so that all evil will be eradicated one day from his universe. To establish his kingdom in Christ. And you could describe this in any number of ways, but the point is this. God is winning back his good creation. So the purpose of winning back creation is captured in the storyline of the Bible, which begins and ends with creation. First creation in Genesis and the new creation in Revelation. God will renew, restore, and redeem his good creation, all of it, both men and women, as well as the entire universe. This is God's mission. So mission means purpose. And we use the term missions uh, to refer to the work that Christians do in advancing the gospel, proclaiming this work of God, the gospel of the kingdom of God. And missions often refers to the specifically cross-cultural aspect of this work. This morning, I want to show you from a point near the beginning of the Bible's story that missions is not just something invented by Paul and Jesus in the New Testament, but that missions is the theme of the whole Bible. So the call of Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, is where we'll be this morning. And the call of Abraham is, is the beginning of God's answer to the problem of evil in the human heart and the strife of nations and the groaning brokenness of the entire creation. Genesis 12 is the beginning of the mission of God and it's the beginning of the mission of God's people. So let's read it together and then I'll, sh- I'll show you what I mean. Genesis 12 verses 1 through 3. And the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever dishonors you, I will curse. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. Well, this passage shows us, first, that God chose to bless Abram. Second, that Abram was meant to be a blessing to all people. And third, that the church takes up this calling. First, that God chose to bless Abram. Second, Abram was meant to bless all people. And then third this morning, we'll consider how the church takes up this calling. So this passage is our introduction to Abram, one of the earliest and greatest figures of the Old Testament. It would later be renamed Abraham, but here his name is Abram. Now, before Abraham, the first 11 chapters of the Bible quickly seemed to spin out of control. 
You know, creation could not have been more perfect originally, but then there was that treasonous, guilty pleasure from Adam and Eve that, that spirals into murder in their children. And within just a few pages, humanity en masse is rebelling against the Creator. So the chaos is just multiplying exponentially. And the flood comes, but it doesn't eradicate the problem because it doesn't eradicate humanity. Resolving the problem wasn't the goal of the flood. It was God's judgment against human rebellion. But, but Noah and his family passed through the great flood. And yet his family is no better than the family of Adam and Eve. And, and the story almost repeats itself. Noah's children take his sins even further. And then shortly again you see humanity en masse rebelling against the creator. Building a tower to topple God's reign so that they could be higher than him. Well, this time, instead of sending mass destruction, God sends mass division. So there's this ethnic and linguistic division that drives people to the four corners of the earth. This is where ethnicities and, and languages come from. So the biblical story tells us from the beginning that all that humanity pursued in order to find happiness and satisfaction instead brought misery led to murder, and, and this cloud of confusion and division settled over humanity. It turns out that men and women are, are bad forecasters of what will make for human happiness. But the, the real dilemma here is not about what will make for human happiness, but rather about what God will do with this situation. How will God remedy this problem and recover his creation? We know that starting over won't work. Noah and his family proved that. And God can't just obliterate creation. That would make his original creation meaningless. It would indicate divine failure. So what is God to do? With humanity divided by personal choice, by sin, by languages and ethnicities, and the creation itself now in ruins, how will God reunite his people, all the people of the earth, and restore the goodness of his universe? So now we have a clear question. How will God remedy the problem brought about by human brokenness? How will God remedy this problem? Now, with this clear question that emerges from evaluating Genesis 1 through 11, we can begin to see what the selection of Abram in in Genesis 12 means. Why was he chosen? Well, he was chosen to resolve this problem where there was brokenness. God wanted to bring blessing. You see that word in these three verses over and over, bless and blessing. God says to Abram, I will bless you. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And all the people of the earth will be blessed through you. God chose Abram in order to bless him, to give him the good life, to bring him into true well-being. And this is one of the most significant questions that humanity always faces. What is the good life? What does true well-being consist of? What's genuinely in our best interest? What does it mean to be blessed? Well, basically it means to avoid living like the people in Genesis 3 through 11. The way those people lived in rebellion against the Creator, don't do that. But rather, to live the good life is to live the kind of life that the Creator made us for. The kind of life that God has called us to. This is what God is offering to Abram. Abram and his people will become, again, God's people, meaning that they belong to God. Like those words we read in 1 Peter 2, 
You are a chosen people, a people for his own possession. In fact, human beings belong to God. We are his creation. Therefore, in practice, we should be submitted to him. And this is the blessed life then, to be correctly related to the God who created us. That's what it means to be blessed, to be correctly related to the God who created us. So the blessing is that God has now made a way for this to happen. He has chosen Abraham and he calls him and makes promises to him. And these, these promises that God makes to Abraham in Genesis 12 then proceed and kind of undulate forward through history, culminating in the birth of Jesus Christ. So God's people, that innumerable crowd promised to Abram in Genesis 12, are then all those people who come back into right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the blessed life, one that's characterized by faith that God exists and obedience to the kind of life that God calls us to. So one way of thinking of this faith and obedience, this right relationship to the Creator, might be thinking about living by the Ten Commandments. So the Creator has given these as parameters for us to live by. Imagine a world in which everyone adhered to the Ten Commandments without exception. You know, the world wouldn't be a perfect place. There'd still be cancer and famine. But, but even with natural disasters and diseases, the world would be an unimaginably be- better place to live. The Ten Commandments, for instance, direct us to uh, avoid, to reject adultery. And not only that, but even they forbid us to covet, to, to, um, to for- they forbid us from coveting your neighbor's wife or spouse. So imagine a world free from adultery and lust. Those things were just completely absent. Even adherence to just those two commands would bring so much blessing and happiness for humanity. So much unhappiness results, not, not from unfulfilled sexual desire, but from wrongly cultivated sexual desire. You know, our thoughts ought to be directed and constrained by the parameters of marital faithfulness. And yet we cultivate desires in other directions, and so we're left discontent and unhappy, unblessed in the way we feel. But, you know, that's not your husband, so don't cultivate a sense of longing to be with him. This is the kind of thing the Ten Commandments call us to. Well, following the Ten Commandments, then, would lead to a blessed life. You know, so it's wrongly cultivated sexual desire that leads to unhappiness, not unfulfilled desire. Another way of thinking about this might be considering the Beatitudes. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus portrays what the blessed life looks like. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who know that they're spiritual zeros, who they bring nothing to the table, they're blessed. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. You know, these things are just characteristic of those who have faith in God and want to walk in obedience to him. So the blessed life is one of faith in Jesus that leads to obedience to God's commands, resulting in a deep happiness that is blessing. This is the kind of life that God was introducing to Abraham in Genesis 12. You and your descendants can be my people. You can live in fellowship with me. 
So God wanted to bless Abram, to give him the good life. But this selection of Abram was not for Abram alone. So notice in verse 3, God says, I will bless those who bless you, and all people on earth will be blessed through you. You see, Abram was meant to bless all people. God wanted to bless all people through Abraham. So the blessing of God would move through Abram to others. Well, this same dynamic appears in one of the songs of Israel much later in Psalm 67, which is a prayer for blessing. It says this, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us so that your way may be known on earth your saving power among all nations. So what is the blessing of God meant to lead to? Well, to the result that his name and his work would be known among all peoples. When we pray for blessing, our prayers that God would bless us should never be detached from prayers that God would make himself known through us to more and more people. And when we recognize that God has blessed us, when we see the ways that God has blessed us, that should spur us to action to proclaim his saving power among all nations that he would be known by people. God has chosen to bless his people, but God has chosen his people to be a conduit for global renewal, for blessing for all people. Imagine a a group of trapped cave explorers deep underneath the earth and they They send one of their number through a narrow, flooded passageway to get to the surface and call for help. The point of their choice is not so that she alone would get rescued, but that she would be able to make it to the top and call for help and equipment to come and rescue the others and ensure they get out as well. You know, selection in this case is an instrumental choice. It's the one for the sake of the many. God has chosen to bless his people. But the same is true when God selects his people. He wants them to bless others. Blessing for the world is the goal that God has in mind. Abram is just the beginning of God's plan to get there. At the other end of the Bible, in Revelation 7, this whole story kind of concludes as the Apostle John has a glimpse into heaven And he describes what he sees there in Revelation 7. He says, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This celestial scene in Revelation 7 is is the fulfillment of the promises in Genesis 12. But in between Abraham and eternity, God has designed for the church to take up this calling. For the church to take up the calling of bringing blessing to the nations. You might have noticed if you were looking there at Genesis 12 that verse 4 continues the story after God calls Abraham to to leave his home with the promise of blessing. Abraham then demonstrates faith in the promises of God and obedience to the commands of God. Verse 4 says, very simply, 
So Abraham went as the Lord had told him. Well, this should be the story of our church. You know, Jesus says to Christ's covenant in a parallel passage in Matthew 28, Go, go make disciples of all nations, bringing the blessing of God in the gospel to them. And we want, we want what is true of Abram in verse 4 to be true of us as well. So Christ's covenant went as the Lord had said. So as we stand on the edge of 2016, we need to evaluate our obedience both personally and collectively. Now, our cooperative effort, our collective effort, in one sense, is going well. You might say our our budget is relatively large and is focused largely, not exclusively, but largely on unreached people groups. This is encouraging. However, there can be an inverse relationship between corporate effort and individual effort. You know, we look at the relative health of our corporate effort, and so we may feel less concern, urgency, or zeal regarding our personal effort. So we we need to each evaluate individually what networks of relationships has the Lord given you uniquely to you. You know, not the gospel partnerships that we have as a church, but the things that are unique to you. Networks resulting perhaps from your hobbies or your children's extracurriculars, your workplaces. Are you approaching those relationships that you have with this sort of mission statement in mind? I want to be a a blessing, demonstrating the love of God and showing them the path to the truly blessed life. Saying, in essence, do you want to live well? Do you want the truly good life? Follow me. I'd encourage you to target some people. In the coming year, target some people who you want to bring the blessing of God in the gospel to. Offer to read the gospel of Mark along with someone or pick up a good Christian book like The Reason for God by Tim Keller. Read that through with someone who's inquiring about the Christian faith. Look to build relationships. Build a friendship with your barista. Exercise with your neighbors and, and build those relationships Use your lunch times at work to host a, a workplace Bible study. You know, think about these kinds of things. In his book, Foolishness to the Greeks, uh, Leslie Newbegin posed the question, what would a genuinely missionary encounter with our current culture look like? What would a genuinely missionary encounter with our current culture look like? In other words, there's a growing gap between Christian belief and secularizing culture which means that we need to approach our interaction with non-Christians in much the same way that a missionary in a foreign country would. Imagine that we were all, this morning, from another country, that we had come from overseas to Raleigh, North Carolina, in order to start a Christian church, get jobs, and act as missionaries in this community. You know, how would thinking of it that way affect the way that you conceive of your immediate neighborhood and the broader Raleigh community. I know if you're a family with children, this may be hardest for you in one sense because time seems to be at such a premium. But consider investing long-term in developing globally-minded children in your own home. Get a copy of the book Operation World that just goes through all the countries of the world and describes the status of gospel advance in those countries and use it to help you pray for the advance of gospel among nations and among all peoples. So 
we need to evaluate personally. You know, how, how are we doing in relationship to this call that we have to be a blessing to all nations? And then there is the work that we are doing collectively as a church, the work that we're doing together in our effort. And at the top of our strategy as a church is evangelism and church planting among unreached people groups, the least reached people of the world. David Platt said, unreached people are unreached for a reason. They're hard, difficult, and dangerous to reach. All the easy ones are taken. So with God's kind of end vision from Revelation 7 in our minds, people from every tribe and language and tongue, we prioritize the least reached. And this is what Steve and Christy are doing. So I want you to see a video now from Steve and Christy and the work that they're doing among two unreached people groups in East Asia. You'll hear Steve's voice and the voice of some others from their team. It might seem like they're kind of speaking in code at times uh, for security purposes, but try to catch the, the big vision of what they're doing as they describe just one aspect of their work. We've been working now in this city for about four years with the hope of seeing God plant churches among Muslim minority groups. We've been in this city for nearly 10 years now, and God has been using us in the process of seeing a church planted amongst the majority people group. We came out here about three years ago, uh, mainly with the hope of motivating, equipping, and training the local majority church, local majority believers to reach out to their Muslim minority neighbors. From the beginning of the church plant, we'd been really praying that this group of majority believers would have a heart to reach out to their Muslim neighbors. We realized during our time working in the city that it's absolutely necessary to involve and partner with the local majority believers. During a recent Muslim holiday, we were able to gather about 50 local majority believers in order to raise awareness among them about the need for reaching out to Muslim minority groups. During this event, we were able to invite two local believers who have experience in uh, doing cross-cultural ministry work um, to really challenge the group uh, to be engaged in um, reaching out to their Muslim neighbors. And then the next day, during the actual holiday, we took a smaller group of people down to a local Muslim area uh, to observe the, some of the festivities. And for some of these people, it's their first time uh, ever communicating and engaging um, these Muslim minority peoples uh, in conversations, uh, even though they've lived next door to, some of, to, to these people uh, for most of their lives. To have a small group of believers from the fellowship we're involved with attend this event was just really exciting and, and felt like an answer to prayers that have been prayed for, for many years. Uh, for a lot of them, it was the first time to really be challenged to think about cross-cultural mission from people from their own country. It was really exciting to see the cooperation for this event among PI teams. There were five different teams involved in this event through speaking at the event, inviting their local majority contacts, or through organizing the event. It is our hope that some of these majority believers that attended our events would come alongside and partner with us in reaching out to uh, this unreached Muslim people group. I really hope that 
some people from our fellowship can really catch the vision of cross-cultural missions. In the big scheme of things, this event was just one small step, but all around the region, many other small steps are happening, and gradually we'll see more and more people one for Jesus. More and more people one for Jesus. You know, more people experiencing God's blessing. More, more people around the throne on that end day crying out from every tribe and tongue, crying out together, salvation belongs to our God. This is what we want. This is why we've been praying for unreached people groups in our corporate prayers on Sunday mornings. Because we believe that God works through prayer and we want God to, to, to move among these people, the least reached, with the blessing of Christ. And this is also why we want to continue the work of the one-year team in East Asia. William, Catherine, and Sarah are over there now doing this kind of tip-of-the-spear work and advancing the gospel among those who have never heard. And we want to send more people in 2016. High school students, listen, this should be on your radar, something that you definitely consider doing mid-college or post-college. As you think to the years ahead and are planning things out, just, just plan to be a part of this team or a team like this in the years to come. In fact, if you're be between the ages of 10 and 20, just listen to me for a second. People who are two to three times your age have a hard time moving. They have purchased homes, they've gotten jobs, they've had children, and they have a hard time moving. But before you form attachments here, form attachments globally. You know, pray for the world. Consider the possibilities. Talk with one of your pastors or your parents about being part of a team like this for a year or two years in the near future. I want you to hear from Mary Williams, um, just a testimony about how God has been working in her heart in, in kind of this very same way. Hello, um, my name's Mary. Uh, I want to read a testimony of how the Lord has um, uh, really challenged me this past year. Back in August 2014, the church leadership first announced a plan to send a group of students on a year-long missions trip to East Asia. From that week on, the news really stuck to my heart. And when I moved back to Boone to start my junior year at Appalachian State, I began thinking and praying about joining the team. As I prayed, sought counsel, and spent time really reflecting on the decision, I started getting excited. If I went, I would be sharing my faith in Jesus with the lost students there who had never heard the gospel before. I'd get to travel to another country with a completely new and different culture. I was even excited about learning another language, which if you knew my history in Spanish this summer, you would not think that that would be something to get excited about. I also felt like I could use specific gifts the Lord has given me with the type of work the group would be doing there. After mulling over everything for several weeks, the main component that kept swaying me towards joining the team was the overwhelming desire to go. But during those weeks, when I talked with my family, Nick, and other leaders in my life, I consistently received the same suggestion, that it seemed best to finish my senior year at school instead of go to East Asia at that time. I struggled to have peace with that conclusion to stay. 
While I knew that staying was the right choice, I harbored a lot of bitterness towards God for not working out the logistical aspects for me. During this time, when I was contemplating this decision, I was also struggling with discontentment and depression. I felt purposeless, and I thought that being a part of this team would have been the perfect way to fulfill God's plan for me and replenish my joy. I longed for the sorrows in my life to go away. I was confused and hurt that God had said no to such a good opportunity. I didn't understand why he said no when all I asked of him was to let me share the name of his son, Jesus, with unbelievers. Later on that semester, the Holy Spirit gently opened my eyes and pointed out the huge hole in my plan. There I was, already attending a university with thousands of unbelievers. As I wallowed in disappointment and hosted a bitter heart towards God for placing me there, I simultaneously asked him if he would open the door for me to do his work just at a different university amongst different unbelievers. Do you see how that worked there? (laughs) With abounding patience and gentleness, God graciously convicted me of my selfishness and revealed my primary desire to go. I needed a change. I wanted to join the one-year team in part for my own personal perceived gain. I secretly hoped that moving to a new location with a blank slate would satisfy me, take away my pain, and fill me with joy. But I built this hope on a lie. My location did not need to change because it wasn't the problem. The people around me were not the problem. I was the problem. The main thing I focused on throughout the whole consideration period had been my plans, my desires, my satisfaction, and my feelings. Meanwhile, I lived timidly amongst thousands of unbelievers. While I had compassion for their lost souls, I was not boldly and intentionally telling them about my relationship with Jesus Christ. I thought myself worthy of traveling across the globe to share my faith, and yet I wasn't fully pursuing the unbelievers all around me at my college. I confessed my my unfaithfulness to the Lord and asked him to forgive me for my selfishness. I also prayed that he would provide opportunities for me to boldly speak truth to others and that I would pursue them obediently. Since then, he has provided opportunities in abundance. He replaced my timid spirit with one emboldened by his spirit and placed people in my life who needed love, hope, and truth While I still desired to go to East Asia and felt drawn to the unreached people there, I saw the mission he had for me at App State. This semester, I have been blessed with the opportunity to co-host weekly dinners with the family that I live with in Boone. Through these meals, we've been able to share the gospel with a couple of unbelievers and engage them in more substantial conversations. The Lord has used this experience, as well as other relationships and opportunities with my classmates and even unbelievers in my college ministry, to grow in me a compassion for the lost who are all around me. He has made me bold. He has used both my shortcomings and my very small acts of faith to fulfill his purposes, and I know he will continue to do so. I am reminded continually that his glory is made perfect in weakness. And I have been so encouraged to see him move in the relationships and opportunities he has brought in my way this past year.
A few months ago, Nick approached me one Sunday after the service and told me that they were planning to send another team of students next year. He knew that I had considered going last year and asked if I still desired to go. I was equally filled with surprise and excitement, but at the same time, I felt so unworthy and undeserving to receive another chance to go. But that's the point. It's not about my faithfulness or my worthiness or my righteousness. My life is to be given up for the advancement of the gospel to the local and global unbelievers he places in my life. Since he has given me the desire, the gifts, and the opportunity, I am prayerfully moving forward towards joining the team next year. Lord willing, I will not do so out of a desire to find my purpose or satisfaction. God has shown me that knowing and following Jesus is the only true source of fullness and joy. I do not wish to do so simply to have an answer to the perpetual, what are you doing after you graduate question. I also do not want to go out of my own strength or abilities. All I have has been given to me by God. He has put this desire in my heart. And now I see how he has used the events of the past year to break me, shape me, and equip me for opportunities like this. As he continues to grow in me a love for broken people, I pray with hope that God will deepen my need and love for Jesus as I put my trust in him to give me his strength and boldness as I share the hope of Jesus to the world. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. <clears throat> We're thankful for the work that God's doing in your life. And it's my, my prayer that God would do that same kind of work in each of us, mo- moving us to uh, move forward in, in the various places that he's set us and with the various desires that he's put in our hearts in order to fulfill this calling of bringing blessing to the nations. So as a church, we're prioritizing the least reach. That's what this team is about. And yet, there would be a danger in focusing only on unreached people groups. And so we've tried to balance our attention as a church with other ministries as well, such as um, the pastoral training and community ministry in places like Haiti and Ecuador, places where the whole of Scripture has not been sufficiently taught. You know, this also is disciple-making and uh, demonstrating gospel blessing. So whether to unreach people or not, you know, we want to send more people, both short-term and long-term. So short-term, we're sending out some teams this coming year. And long-term, we'd love to send out uh, another uh, couple or individual in the years to come. You know, on average, it takes seven churches in America to support one long-term missionary. Now, Singapore is way outpacing us. They're sending one and a half missionaries per church. So we take more than seven churches to send one. They're sending more than one per church. Let's catch up with them. You know, by God's grace, driven by faith and joy in Christ, let's move ahead. As a church, Let's, let's work and plan and pray to move forward in seeing this call fulfilled through us. And while we use the bulk of our money for overseas work, we should use the bulk of our time to minister right here where God has put us. 
So again, considering our collective obedience in this area, as a church, we want to bring blessing to this community through reflecting the generosity of God and proclaiming the gospel of God here. Just to give you a little preview of one way we want to do that in the coming year, we're going to make a collective effort this spring called Serve Raleigh, April 3rd through 9th, just devoting a week as a church uh, to prayer for our community and to service in our community in various ways. Uh, Both some of the things we already have going, like working with refugees, as well as uh, working with First Choice Pregnancy Center. And I would encourage you to brainstorm about other possible ways that we as a church might be able to serve our community that week. As we close, let me just encourage you to do three things. First of all, pray. Pray. Pray individually. Pray as a family and with others. And pray along with the church. That God would make fruitful our individual efforts and the gospel partnerships that we have uh, as a church. The brochure in your bulletin this morning could serve as a, a prayer guide almost for you to be praying that God would make these efforts towards the advance of the gospel fruitful. Secondly, continue giving. You know, we as a church have a, a large budget and want to do even more in terms of missions. And, and our ongoing faithfulness in giving will sustain uh, this, this effort that we have towards gospel advance. So think of your giving in that way, a collective effort to see the gospel advance both here and abroad. And then third, go. Uh, serve locally, serve nationally, uh, serve in other places of the world. Block out April 3rd through 9th on your calendars for Serve Raleigh and devoting that week uh, to serving our community. And then consider one of those nine trips that we'll be taking in 2016 to places like Amman, Jordan, to work with Syrian refugees, to East Asia, to Ecuador, and to Clifton. May God's desire to bring blessing to all the nations. This is his desire in human history, the way he has been working from Abraham until now and continues to do so. May his desire be fulfilled through our church. We'll take a moment now for silence, just for you to prayerfully reflect on God's goodness and unfolding this plan of redemption for men and women, and for you to prayerfully consider what role he may be calling you to. And then one of the elders will close us in just a moment in prayer.